there's still a lot of legacy old-fashioned thinking that in some cases the board is somehow distinct up in the ivory tower and that the accountability of the board itself, who are they accountable to? And while legally they're accountable to the shareholders and to the stakeholders and things like that, a lot of boards really kind of lost their way in understanding their role and their responsibilities. I'm John Fitzgerald, host of The Cord Podcast. I'm curious about the changing world of work. I want to have conversations that will help us all become future ready. Hello and welcome back to The Cord Podcast. And today I'm joined by Kieran Moynihan and we're going to be discussing boards and how they operate in the future of work. And uh, Kieran and I met on a Future of Work podcast many years ago when we were discussing I suppose all of the changes that were happening in the world way back then, and a lot more changes happened in the last number of years that Kieran's going to bring us through. I'm really interested in getting into the boardroom because I think there's always a sense of mystique around what really goes on in the boardroom, politics, personalities, egos, the old boys club. That's all changing as we'll hear from Kieran. And I have this kind of analogy that, that I picked up around international football teams coming together for a short period of time and going back to their clubs and playing, you know, to earn their wage each week. And I think boards are, can quite often be like that. So where is the commitment to them and what is their role and purpose in society? So we'll be discussing all of that. And uh, Kieran is a proud Corkman. And I suppose the COVID pandemic has really transformed and changed Kieran's business as being predominantly an Irish and UK delivery of services to now being very much a global player in helping boards achieve excellence and peak performance. So we're delighted uh, for you to join us this morning, Kieran. Thanks very much and absolutely delighted now to be on the card and hopefully give yourself and your listeners some very interesting, I suppose, and prescient insights into life in the boardroom and what's happening in boards from large stock market company boards to small charity non-profit boards and everything in between. Very good. Brilliant. Well, before we get started into boards, just a little bit about yourself and we'll go into a coaching question and, uh, you know, your influences and values and growing up in Cork as as a young man and uh, where you got your influences in life. So I grew up in Cork City on the north side, uh, very proud from Farnry in the north side of Cork City. Working class area, but very, you know, traditional proud area, very strong work ethic. And I suppose, as you all recall, and many of the listeners recall, growing up in Ireland, the 80s wasn't very easy. It was tough. Um, my own, you know, father worked on a building site all his life, was unemployed for a lot of that time. My mom worked in, uh, you know, in the kitchen nearby hotel. So, you know, it wasn't easy, but, you know, we had great kind of family values. I was the middle of three brothers. Um, I suppose I was the first of our kind of family um, to actually go to university as well. So I had a great interest in technology and engineering and I started in UCC in electrical engineering back in 87, graduated in 91. And uh, my first week, actually, I joined after college, joined Motorola which had a big uh, R&D facility in Cork. And I was shipped off straight away to Chicago to work for six months there in one of the world's first mobile networks in Chicago. 
And I spent eight years with Motorola, John. It was fantastic. Got a great, you know, some brilliant engineers that I learned from, you know, kind of, I was ambitious, kind of worked up the ranks and I got to the stage then where in 98 was doing quite well, but got the startup bug, so to speak. And along with a colleague of mine, Declan at the time, we decided to found a telecommunication software company uh, to manage the new 3G networks at the time. Uh, so we set out on a crazy journey back then. I remember going up to tell my mother I was leaving a multinational and she broke down. She just thought it was the end of the world. You know, she said, what about your pension? And so what about everything? And I said, no, we're going to go for it. So we set off on a journey, built a fantastic team. We raised about 30 million venture capital funding at the time, which was quite a lot back then. But it was a huge experience for me. I was a pretty decent engineer but no finance experience no sales experience and all of a sudden we had a hundred engineers a hundred of us in Cork but in the UK as well in our sales team and it was an incredible experience um, um John and we set off on a just roller coaster journey nearly ran out of money a few times it was very tough our market collapsed in the early 2000s in telecoms but we hung in there and we had four very supportive uh, investment funds from the US, Germany, the UK and Ireland. And it all culminated, we combined with a company in Seattle uh, around 2003, we grew further and we were then acquired by IBM in 2007. And it was a fantastic outcome. And the majority of my team are still in IBM today. And there was about 150 of us when we were acquired in 2007. I spent three years as a vice president in IBM um, on planes around the planet every week. But by the time we got to 2010, there was 350 of us between Cork and Galway, uh, which was a fantastic outcome. And at that stage, then, to be honest, um, John, I was knackered. It was just it was like 12 years of flying around the planet nonstop and just 100 or weeks. It was really incredible. So I was delighted I had the opportunity just to step back from the executive world and take on something that I was really excited about, uh, being the chairman of some technology companies myself. It sounds like a roller coaster ride. I remember somebody giving me that advice, you know, when I started out in business first, enjoy the roller coaster ride. And it sounds like it was an amazing one for you. And uh, obviously, like a lot of executives, I suppose, you know, you say they're completely knackered at the end of the journey. And I definitely yeah. see that with a lot of people as well, that corporates do burn you out and life on a plane around the world. But, you know, John, when, when I look back at that time, people often ask me, what was the best part? And for me, the absolute best part was I was blessed with a brilliant team, absolutely exceptional individuals who literally now went to the ends of the earth. And we really worked hard because our first kind of real major customer was AT&T in the US, the world's largest mobile phone operator at the time with 100 million customers. And the engineering challenges of building that system were phenomenal. And but it was a great team. We worked really well, uh, got great successes, had some tough times as well, but we got there. But one of the key uh, reasons for our success as well, John, is I ended up with a brilliant board of directors. And when I started the company, I didn't know anything about boards or, you know, I kind of all of a sudden we had four big investment funds and each of them appointed the director to our board. And I managed to identify two very good industry directors. So we had six kind of directors. And I was kind of trying to figure out how all this is going to work. I can tell you the first board meeting anyway, to say that it was a baptism by fire was an understatement. It was literally having a flak jacket and helmet on. Um, but 
it was incredible the value that they added and that actual that board to this day and i've seen a lot of boards since one of the very best boards i've seen they were instrumental in our success really helped me as a young rookie ceo and that was the genesis for board excellence then all those years later so board excellence came about then and why and what was your vision at the start for board excellence or did you have a an almighty vision of where you wanted to bring it or was it stumbling along from it, it, it was stumbling along to say when i finished in 2010 from the corporate world or the executive world and i, I took on the chairman role for a number of venture capital kind of backed technology and medical sector companies i was just enjoying doing that but the one thing i loved doing was helping people with their board problems so a lot of people would have known I had an interest in board dynamics and had particular approaches to getting boards working well. And from 2010 on, people would often ring me from across Ireland, the UK and the US in my network and say, Karen, the board are at each other's throats and not getting on well. See on the chair aren't getting on well. No one trusts each other. What would you think? And I used to love giving them ideas. But I got to the stage then where in 2015, a couple of companies asked me to do actual projects. And I said, all right, that's a sign. And I loved doing it. And literally in 2016 then was the formal first projects in the UK, actually. And is it often, as you described there, when things are not going so well that people started to bring you in, that there was a problem rather than they wanted to get to the next level? Yeah, but I found, I suppose there's been a traditional model, um, John, of that the boards had all very experienced directors, the good and the great in some cases, many people with three, four decades of experience, and that there was almost an assumption that, you know, they should be working well. But the reality is a lot of boards really struggle. There's all sorts of complexities. And in the first couple of cases in the UK, there were companies that large UK investment firms had invested in, really wanted the boards to be exceptional, and they weren't. And they felt I had a very good practical approach and the fact that I was a CEO myself for a lot of years and now was chairing boards, it just gave me, I suppose, a balanced perspective. And I suppose the other thing that really helped as well, John, is that I would have a very honest style of working with a board and executive team. And I wouldn't hold back in terms of if they were doing things that are really good. And I said, listen, that's, that's outstanding. But if there was real challenges or issues where they weren't working well together, and for me, the litmus test for any board is, are you excelling for the shareholders and the stakeholders? And that's the key. So I kind of always took the philosophy for boards as high-performing sports teams, where every single board director pulled their weight, really add value. And the chair is the overall leader of the board, working closely with the CEO, that they set the bar high in how the board works. And I suppose that was refreshing because a lot of the traditional board consultancy practices like ourselves would have had a very kind of safe, nuanced style, not wanting to upset people and just say, yeah, um, everything looks OK. There's little one or two areas to tweak. And I had come into board situations where it was completely dysfunctional, but no one wanted to actually say it. So I didn't have a problem saying it and say, folks, come on, this you're really letting down the company, the organization, the charity, whatever it is. And what I found then is by being very honest, John, where they were at, how it didn't compare to good practice, but also then coming up with very practical solutions of how to address the issues. 
Yeah, that honesty came across when we first met and, uh, you know, you were quite modest in saying you had a high performing board when you started out in, in business first. But uh, I know that there was a reason for that as well, Kieran. And, you know, I remember giving honest feedback. A CEO one time actually down in a multinational down your way asked me to do some 360 degree feedback and give him some honest feedback on what the leadership team were giving about him. And uh, <laughs> I gave the feedback anyway, and I was politely walked the door that was my last time on that site so that honesty i mean people say they want honesty but obviously when you come into an organization that can cause an awful lot of chaos when you're coming in and giving an honest appraisal so what's your process for doing that and how do you manage the politics and the egos when you get involved with the board i suppose the first thing for us john is we give everyone fair warning so i would say to him listen just so you're clear if you're asking Board Excellence to do a board evaluation or a corporate governance evaluation, you're going to get a very detailed, very comprehensive and fair balance, but it's going to be very honest. And if there's elephants in the room, if there's serious issues, we're going to call them out and we will call out the solution. So and I've had only one or two occasions, John, where a board chair said to me, can to be honest, that wouldn't suit us. And I said, that's fine, right? That someone else would suit you better. But where then we've made that very clear, we would have a very structured process. Then we would initially meet with the board chair and the CEO and often the company secretary just to get a feeling for the organization. Could be a very large company or a charity, public sector board, membership body, whatever it is. We would then get all of the board directors and all of the executive team to complete quite a searching um, questionnaire that would really now kind of <laughs> under the bonnet poke at at trust and how well you're supported and the value you believe the board directors add, the, the attitude of the CEO and the executive team in terms of accountability to the board. So you're really kind of searching, right? The next thing then we would do is we review the last 12 months of every scrap of paper that goes through the board and the committees. So everything got to do with that organization and the board, their strategy, executive team, risk management, ESG, their policies towards their people, everything really in depth the next stage then um, is we would have a confidential interview with each board member and each executive team member and that's where you find things people just really open up and it's just one-on-one -on -one. i always start off by asking the same question how do you feel about how this board and executive team are working together and i suppose the important thing to say uh, Jan, is that the board don't exist in isolation the board and the non-executive directors and the CEO and the executive team are inextricably linked together. And the functioning of the board has a big dependency on the CEO and the executive team. So we meet with each of the board and the executive members one-on-one -on -one, and people just nine times out of 10, and they really open up and just kind of, I've had people break down and just say how stressful they're finding it. They don't trust the board. One of the executive team members, they just don't trust the board, they're very guarded what they tell them. And if there's serious problems, they'll try and hold them as long as they can. And sometimes a non-exec director then would say, can to be honest, I don't think the CEO or the exec can really respect us as the non-exec directors. They're not really open. They're very defensive. Anytime we ask the hard searching questions, the CEO starts shutting everything. So all that comes out and all those issues. And the final part then, um, Chan, is we observe a board meeting. Right, which is a bit of a kind of strange process. And every now and again, 
the CEO or a board director would be saying something. And next day, they'd see me in the corner kind of scribbling notes very quietly. And so we'd observe the board and the committee meetings. And while we find for the first 10 or 15 minutes, people are a bit conscious of you there. But after, you know, in a three hour board meeting, they kind of forget that you're there just quietly observing. And it's fascinating just to see some of the dynamics. Obviously, over video, the last two years hasn't been quite the same as in person. But at the end of all those inputs, then, John, I would put together or any of my team would put together a draft report where we assess normally in kind of 15, 20 categories how the overall board and executive team are working, what's going well and kind of celebrate that. But importantly, maybe what's not going so well and what are the areas to improve? And we would then lay out a roadmap of recommendations in each area to really help them get to an eight or a nine out of 10. So what would happen then, John, I would share that first draft with the board chair, just to give them an opportunity. And I would always ask the board chair to look at three things. A, have I anything factually inaccurate? Because at that stage, you'd have been engaged for two or three months, so you've really spent a lot of time. B, do they think there's anything where I've lost the plot completely? Where they just say, you're yeah, not sure about that. Or thirdly, is there anything very sensitive? Sometimes there could be a sensitive issue regarding CEO potentially, who's under pressure, things like that. And most of the time, if I can, I'd accommodate every now and again. The chair would say to me, Karen, I'm not happy with that section. And I'd say to him, sorry, you know, um, but that's my honest view. And it's an independent external report. And that's how I see it. And to get from the report then to a high performance you know, once that probably takes something like three or four months, as you say, to do that. Yeah. So what we find then at that stage, once the chair has given me feedback, I would do any final tweaks. It would then be issued to the board and to the executive team. In many cases, I would then go stand in front of the board, which sometimes isn't easy because it's just yourself and it's the whole board and the executive team. And it's in some cases, it's telling me a little bit that the baby may not be as pretty as they thought. Who brought this guy in here? And um, it can be challenging. But what I find actually interesting enough, um, John, one of our differentiators that we do that's worked really well for us. The very first time I did a board evaluation and it was a difficult one. As I was reading out the report, um, I just had a bit of flash of inspiration where I said to them that, listen, I'm handing you over now this report but I'm actually going to be available for the next 12 months to help the board and the executive team at no cost to you. Anytime you want me to look at any of the recommendations you're implementing, any of the issues, we'll help you actually address the issues. And what I find then, John, is when people realize that you've spent, in some cases, two or three months, depending on the scale of the organization, under the bonnet, getting your hands really dirty, we really work hard on our evaluations and things like that, they kind of realize then that, you know what, he doesn't know any of us. He's just given his best honest opinion about how to help us improve. So we find 95% of the time, uh, John, that the board and the executive teams really embrace it. There has been one or two occasions where I'd say the Lord himself came down, the board and the executive team wouldn't be taking the advice. I want to ask you a quick question. Is your organization going through unprecedented growth, restructuring or change? At Harmonix, through our consultancy and coaching work with business and HR leaders, we face one common challenge. 
the overwhelming pace of change and not enough time or resources to properly reset to become future fit. If you would like to register for a free diagnostic session with one of our team of experts, go to harmonics.ie to get in touch today. Now, back to the podcast. And I think that comes back to your honesty again. The triple helix that you mentioned in your most recent article there are boards that impress you the most. Talk to us about that triple helix and why it's so important today. Yeah, so one of the things I, over the last six years, John, at this stage, I'd say we've evaluated probably over 200 boards at this stage. So I've there's eight of us in our practice, eight partners. So between us all, we've done quite a wide range of organization with tens of thousands of employees to small companies, SMEs, family businesses. And, but what I noticed, one common den- or three common denominators actually in the very best boards is really good boards. You know, they have a lot of experience, both on the non-exec directors and the CEO and the executive team. But three things in particular that really stood out for me, the first is the very best boards have a fantastic attitude to their customers. They really understand the customers. And even though the non-exec directors, they're not in the business or the organization hour to hour or day to day, they really have a great emphasis on how are we treating our customers? Are we going the extra mile for our customers and really being supportive, right? And setting the bar very high for the CEO and the executive team and that. And in the really good organizations, I find the CEO and the exec, they're there anyway, fantastic towards our customers. The second area then is employee-centric just a huge respect from every single board director and the chair of the board for the employees right down to the most junior employee. So even in COVID times, one of the things I got a a lot of boards to do is what I call is like an employee AGM, where the board and the management team together stood in front of the employees to thank them for all their efforts, all the sacrifice and things like that. But what it is then is, and unfortunately, we've just seen in recent days, the treatment of the P&O 800 employees, right? To say that's a million miles from that mindset would be an understatement, right? And to be honest, shame on that board and company in how they sat around that board meeting table and thought that was the right way. Obviously, employees know that when a company has serious financial challenges, there are some tough pain and there's some very tough... but how you treat and respect your employees. And for me, really good boards and executive teams are incredibly respectful of their employees, the loading, the conditions and things like that. And that was particularly relevant, I think, during COVID times as well, where early on, a lot of employees really made incredible sacrifices to support customers and things like that. The final part then, John, I suppose, is the hottest topic in boardrooms in the last 12 to 18 months has been the whole area of uh, ESG. So that's environment, social and governance. And what I kind of term all that area is just absolute commitment to do the right thing. And what I find are really good boards, they have just such a decency and they have just that core set of ethics and values and culture just running right through the veins of not only each of the individual board directors, but collectively as well. And because they have that, they are really starting to see what can we do to reduce our admissions? What can we do to support our communities more and just really be a very good, for want of a better word, corporate citizen and really support our communities and all various things, and particularly like what's happened in the Ukraine in the last couple of weeks. 
all the various organizations who have really stood up and been counted. You know, it, it strikes me that uh, all of the things that you described there in that triple helix of customers, employees, centricity and commitment to do the right thing are, are innately human things that are, you know, easy to implement. And, and you look at, I suppose, all of the scandals and the lack of trust in institutions going back, the, you know, for however many decades now. And why haven't boards really got this, in your opinion? What I found in particular, John, one of the biggest problems for me, and I see such a wide range of boards, is there's still a lot of legacy old-fashioned thinking that in some cases the board is somehow distinct up in the ivory tower and that the accountability of the board itself, who are they accountable to? And while legally they're accountable to the shareholders and to the stakeholders and things like that, a lot of boards really kind of um, lost their way in understanding their role and their responsibilities and that they're actually accountable themselves. And in a lot of cases, every time I look, I've researched and looked at hundreds of scandals all around Ireland, the UK and internationally. And there's always a very interesting pattern, John, that, to, that I'd say 80 to 90 percent of the scandals, there's a pattern. Often you'll see a chair who really loses control and really isn't setting the bar high on how the company or the organization behaves. Secondly, you'll often find a dominant CEO who in some cases riding roughshod over the board. And while the CEO on paper works for the board and is accountable to the board, you've seen lots of organizations and we've seen scandals across boards in Ireland in all, in all types of sector, the company sector, charity, all types of sectors like that, where you often find the chair has lost their way, CEO in many cases is left unchecked. But then the thing for me, when you look around the board table, each of the individual board directors, a lot of them knew that something was wrong. Right. They just knew in their gut. These are all intelligent people. Right. Head down and rather than putting their hand up and said, you know, folks, this is wrong. What we're doing here and what we're signing off to is fundamentally wrong. And, and I suppose the other aspect then as well is just that culture of doing the right thing and protecting the organization. So a lot of the financial scandals that have happened on boards, that wasn't something that happened overnight, right? Any sharp-minded audit risk committee or any non-exec directors really on their game would have spotted that. And I suppose for me as well, what it points to, John, is the performance culture on boards. So an awful lot of those boards that had serious scandals, they didn't have any board evaluations. No one went in there to really look closely because I guarantee all those type of organizations, any experienced board evaluator who would be honest and would go in would spot them instantly. And, you know, from working with lots of executives and, and people in their career who are maybe moving into their 50s and they're saying, look, I need to future proof my career in some way here. I'd like to serve as a non-executive director. And you know, there is a sense of getting on a kind of a trek of picking up a number of non-execs as I go. And that gives me a certain income stream in the future if I ever get the push from my own organization or, or post uh, taking a package or leaving or whatever. So what has changed or, you know, from your opinion, what should they be doing now to prepare themselves for serving on boards into the future? 
rather than maybe the more legacy approach to serving on boards. Yeah. Do you know, the most important thing, John, is we help, for example, lots of SMEs who are starting to build out their board, lots of family businesses who would have had a very traditional approach to board, just their kind of inner circle, so to speak. But what we're finding now is a lot of companies are starting to realize, you know, if they really want to scale and future proof the companies, they're going to need to not only expand the strategy of the company, but in many cases to really strengthen the board and add people who bring an awful lot of experience. So a lot of those people you talked about, they're in their 40s and 50s now. They have so much valuable experience as executives themselves. And if you think about it, one of the things you most want a non-exec director to bring into the boardroom is their experience, the scars in their back and knees from all expanding into these markets and just their judgment and their independence of mind that you know what it's like yourself, that when you're a CEO and executive team member and you're working 60, 80 hours a week and you're so close to it, right? It can be very difficult to see the wood from the trees. Whereas when you get very sharp, non-exec directors who genuinely are independent of mind and will tell you and will call it out right that adds huge value so we one of the services we provide in ireland is where we help place non-exec directors and chairs on company boards in particular and smes anywhere from a million turnover to 100 million turnover so we've really seen a lot of those first-time non-exec directors and just some incredible talent right and i suppose one of the learning curves for someone in that position is really to get a feel for corporate governance and the responsibilities of being on a board. So one of the things I'd often advise people who are considering and wanting to build a portfolio of a couple of non-exec direct roles on companies that are uh, remunerated is to get some experience on a charity and non-profit board. Because whether it's a charity board or a FTSE board, 90% of the operating principles are exactly the same. And it's around having that overall set of fiduciary and legal responsibilities. And I always say to any kind of first time non-exec director that once you have that strong commitment to do the right thing, you will be fine. Right? And you learn the ropes like everything else. And it's just that balance of being able to, you know, when you're only spending maybe a day or so or two days a month with a company, just that ability where you get the board pack, you know, a week in advance of really putting in the hard yards to understand where they're at and get that the very best non-exec directors I find, John, have this great ability to balance being very challenging, asking the hard questions and holding the CEO and the executive team's feet to the fire and their commitments and targets, but also then adding incredible value and support and encouragement and just really being there and rolling up the sleeves and particularly in the first six months of the pandemic i saw some incredible boards and non-exec directors really stand up and be counted being available to the ceo and the executive team for a lot more board and committee meetings just to really help out and it's powerful for an organization when you see a really good board partnering with the executive team yeah and Another point on that, I suppose, we've talked about people at that particular age of life, but, you know, we know as well, and I think you mentioned it in your most recent piece about the digital DNA and that missing from boards. So getting younger people involved and more diversity in boards. Absolutely. If I was in my 
I don't know, my early 30s, the idea of maybe serving on a board would be far away from my horizon. So how would you get involved if you were that younger person or, or, you know, how did they pitch themselves to move into boards? Yeah. Do you know, John, if you went back, say, five or 10 years ago, you would never have seen a 38 year old on a board. Right. The average age still of FTSE board in the UK is 62, right? So that give you a sense. And so you can imagine for a lot of company boards in Ireland, the average age is still in the 50s and 60s. But I think technology and the digital transformation that's ongoing is changing that. And as you know better than me, John, we're the future of our work has now changed. And you are seeing people in their mid, late 30s who have achieved more in some respects than people traditionally in their 50s and 60s, 10, 20 years ago, right? They've, in some cases, they've bought and sold a few companies, they've developed, they've, at an earlier age, joined the leading, say, tech multinational, because we have such a concentration here in Ireland. And you're getting people now where for work-life reasons, for family balance and things like that, and wanting to spend more time with their children and things like that, are now seeing the benefits of rather than, you know, having a full-on executive career at age 37, do you know what? I'm going to look to have a couple of non-exec roles where I can really add value. And the net kind of salary and things that mightn't be too far apart uh, when you compare that type of portfolio with that. And then the key thing, I suppose, as regards is building out your network, Jan, just that we have people aware. And obviously, you know, LinkedIn is fantastic for that. and you know, while we offer a service and the likes of the Institute of Directors offer a service to help with uh, placing board directors and some of the firms like Merck and people like that, I would still say 60, 70% of board placements comes from people in their network who they're asking someone said, listen, we're kind of looking around for a kind of digital native, someone really strong. Would you know anybody in that type of thing like that? So that's an aspect of that, uh, John. But again, I find getting the first role is the most important. That once you're on a board and things like that, it's very easier to get the second type role. It's like getting the first opportunity in a consultancy like ourselves, you know, somebody to trust you, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, someone to trust. And I think once you have that, and that's why I say to people that serving on a charity or a nonprofit board or whatever like that, that really helps that when you are going then for a paid board position and the chair and CEO is looking and say, all right, they understand that fiduciary, those legal responsibilities that come with serving on a board. So that's why I think that, you know, we have fantastic charities, nonprofit organizations across the country who are always looking for board members. And, you know, looking at the future of work then and how boards are changing and evolving, if you were to, to look in the next few years, what changes do you see coming down the tracks that maybe we haven't experienced yet that uh, boards should be watching out for or CEOs for that matter? Yeah, I think the biggest change, John, and it's been too long coming, actually, if I be honest with you, is the diversity on boards. I mean, we mentioned about about age diversity is that's really starting to happen. We're really starting to finally sort out gender diversity on boards as well. And that was has been a huge problem in so many sectors and while it started in stock market companies that got came under huge pressure from their institutional investors to improve their diverse i'm now starting to seeing it on more and more smes and their boards they're seeing the value of having a great mix of men and women 
different ages, different professional background, different social background in some cases. And we're starting to see now we do an awful lot of work in the UK where you're really expected to have a mix of ethnic type background on boards. We're going to have that in Ireland in time to come as well, because we have a great mix now from so many different ethnic backgrounds, so many different geographic backgrounds. So I think you're going to start to see boards change. You're going to see more younger people. And for me as well, John, you're going to see the model of the boards is going to become probably a little bit of a mix of in-person and digital. Everyone is a bit tired of the digital, the video after two years, right? But you're starting to see a mix of the two where a number of the board meetings, particularly the critical board meetings, will be held in person, which optimizes just the engagement. But you'll have a number of board and committee meetings then that would be held virtually as well. I suppose that, you know, even your own business, as you've talked about, globally, it's presented opportunities in faraway lands that you would never have the opportunity to travel to or it wouldn't make it realistic. When the COVID happened, I remember literally when things started to shut down, thinking, well, what's this going to mean for board excellence, right? And the exact opposite happened where... We had been doing a lot of work across Europe with various investment firms and we were helping. So we would have traveled regularly to Europe. But a lot of those investment firms had boards and portfolio boards all across the world. And all of a sudden, within a couple of months of COVID-19 starting, we were helping boards over video in Latin America, in Africa, in Southeast Asia, in Eastern Europe, everywhere. At this stage now, we've delivered board projects in over 25 countries internationally, and it's growing by the month. And it just worked extremely well that, you know, so all when I talked about our board evaluations, we did everything over video. And in fact, a lot of the board director executive found it very relaxing. They were in their own house chatting one and one about how the board was working. And it really, no, there still isn't a substitute job for meeting someone in person. Right. But in practice, what we found is we were able to really help. I mean, I remember mediating board disputes in Southeast Asia, right? And you would think, how could you do that remotely? But everyone was, was remote over video. And I walked through all the various issues and got a board and executive team in a large financial institution back working together again. Yeah. And interestingly, you have this picture of the mahogany table and, and everyone suited and booted in a boardroom. Whereas I think the opportunity to see people in their home environments and even see something like the club that they might support in the background or whatever books they read. Yeah, it it was very different. It shows the diversity of people's interests and personalities, I think, a lot more than when you're showing up to perform. You know, I would have done board evaluation interviews of CEOs with either their pet or their child alongside them on the table, right? And it all worked perfectly fine. And if anything, it was even more relaxed. And I think to your point as well, the whole perception of boards is starting to change. And one of the things I say to boards quite a lot is I would be a great advocate of servant leadership for leadership teams. And I'd say to board that each of you are here individually and collectively to serve and support your shareholders, your stakeholders, your employees, your customers and things like that. So there's a slowly change starting to happen in that traditional up in the ivory tower kind of model for boards, that old fashioned model is starting to change. And you're starting to realize that I said to people at the end of the day, the board is no different to any other team. It has its job, its various responsibilities. And at the end of the day, it has responsibility when it steps out onto the pitch 
the really pull its weight, each board director, and then obviously the board chair is a critical responsibility, but to really add value. And what I found a lot of um, uh, boards John, is that uh, they thought they were adding value and really kind of excelling. And I'd say to them, listen, I might give you a six and a half out of 10, you're a long way from nine. And this is what you need to be doing to get to nine. Great stuff. Look, I could talk to you all day. You bring such great insight and honesty. And I think you exemplify servant leadership because uh, you have a fantastic attitude to your customers, as I know from lots of recommendations uh, along the way. I just want to wrap up with some quick fire questions, Kieran. Um, a book that you'd most recommend? Do you know, I think um, I read quite a lot of business books over the years, a lot of books about boards, but one of the books I still like most is actually Good to Great by Jim Collins. I just think there is such a great attitude in there. And he was ahead of its time in terms of just that, that keys to success for organizations excelling. Uh, I still think that's, that for me is a great, a great book. That has already been mentioned on previous podcasts here as well, which is interesting to see the themes. Do you listen to any podcasts? And, and if you do, any, any ones you'd recommend? I'll kind of be very parochial here now, right? And I'd say the Cord is a fantastic one. Here, Greg Kenty does a fantastic podcast in called Win Happy. And he's a great eclectic mix of all different interesting folks, both from the business and the arts and things like that. So that's one I really enjoy. Yourself, no, and, and Greg, I think they're two of the leading Irish ones now. Yeah, Greg is a great guy and uh, highly recommend Win Happy. He's, uh, as you say, an eclectic mix of, of characters there. Best life or career advice you were given? Do you know, probably the best advice I was ever given was from my first business mentor, fantastic gentleman called Joe O'Keefe, who was Enterprise Ireland appointed Joe as my first mentor when I started the company. And he had a fantastic way of people and managing people and leading people. I remember he always said to me, the first day I started literally as a CEO, he said, can I always remember that each person you engage with in the company and customers and things like that have this imaginary placard that hangs over their neck and has two little messages, two little things that they're asking for. One is to be loved. And secondly, for people to think they're very good at their job. Right. And he says, always remember that when you're dealing and engaging with people and your own team members, just to help them to be their best. And even though at times, you know, a customer might be difficult or, you know, your own team or whatever like that, understand at the end of the day, we're all people, we're all human. We all have a similar set of needs. And just to be able to understand and tap into and enable that. Uh, and for me, truly, done by far the best advice. That's a brilliant way to wrap up the podcast, Kieran, because I think it it, um, it speaks to everything that you've talked about in the podcast. And I think what you've done on the interview is humanise the boardroom and really shown that whatever level you're at in an organisation, it is all about human beings and about connection, about customers and doing the right thing. I love that commitment to doing the right thing. And I think if we step and think back on, you know, ourselves as human beings and how would we like to be treated? It's always about doing the right thing rather than, you know, maybe presenting this side of ourselves, which may not be appropriate for the, the time we're living in. Absolutely. Okay, Kieran, thanks a million for that. And um, every best wish for, for the future in board excellence. Thanks very much, John. Really appreciate it. And great to chat this morning. Thanks for listening to The Core today. 
We would really appreciate if you could follow, subscribe and share as we seek to grow our community of listeners. Speak again soon. Thank you.